BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Through 25 seasons, 4,561 episodes. I believe The Oprah Winfrey Show was one of the greatest classrooms in the world. I really never thought of it that way. The aha moments, the breakthroughs, the LOLs, the connections, the occasional ugly cry. I miss him so terribly. I miss him every single minute. The moments that mattered. The eye-opening life lessons. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. I'm bringing them back. It's time to open the vault. I've personally chosen these classic episodes to share with you again. Every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? You are listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. Well, one of the things I've learned over the years is that nobody makes it alone. Every one of us gets through the tough times because somebody's there standing in the gap to close it for you. Isn't that right? That's true. And today you're going to meet people. This show is going to be, really be uplifting and inspiring for you. So you're going to meet people who've sacrificed everything. Some even put their own lives on the line to help a friend in need. And I will make you question yourself. What would you do for a friend? Debbie Vibber and Stacey Beeler have been close friends now for years. But Stacey had no idea what a devoted friend Debbie was until she made the ultimate sacrifice. Debbie gave Stacey the family she always dreamed of. Going to love this. It has been my dream for my entire life to be a mom. And we tried to start having our family, and it just wasn't happening. It was very disappointing. At the end of 13 years, I had had 10 miscarriages. Emotionally, after my last miscarriage, I cannot keep trying and keep being disappointed. It was hard on everybody, and I couldn't, I just had to stop at that point. We just felt like we were coming to the end of the line where our options were running out. We were closer to the end of our hope of being parents. Debbie and I became friends about 10 years ago, and the first time we met, there just really seemed to be an instant connection with us. Ever since we've met, we've had a strong relationship, a, a bond that I think a lot of people don't have. It was really hard for me to watch her go through miscarriage after miscarriage and the heartache. Stacy and I have such a special bond. I truly love her and would do anything for her. At one point during the, our miscarriages, Debbie came to me and said that she would be willing to carry a baby for us to help us realize our dreams of having a family. And that's when we really started to discuss that that might be our last and final option. For several years, Stacy and David thought about Debbie's selfless offer and finally decided it was a chance they would all take together. 
After four months of treatments using Stacy's eggs and David's sperm, Debbie became pregnant through in vitro fertilization, not just with one baby, but with quadruplets. As we saw each baby on this ultrasound screen, we were speechless. And then on June 6th last year, Debbie went into labor and finally, Stacy and David's dream of becoming parents came true. It was just amazing to see those babies for the first time. It was, it was a miracle. And as they lifted each baby up over the curtain to show us our beautiful new babies, I was just thinking what a great job she did because they were so big and, and they looked so healthy and they were all crying. David and Stacy were just so happy and just the look on their face was all I needed. My heart just melted. I just, I, I didn't even know what to say to her as she just laid there looking at my babies with me. I, I couldn't even find the words to thank her for what she had done. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Stacey was just wonderful because she did not leave my side. Having her in my life is a blessing. There was a reason why I didn't have a baby on my own, and that was because she was coming into my life. What Debbie has done for me has changed my life. I mean, I have four little miracles roaming around my house. What kind of person is that? How many people in your life do you know that would do that for you? Or even offer? Not many. Probably not any. She's incredible. Whoa, is that a story? Wow. Well, Debbie's, um, Debbie's contribution didn't end after the babies were born. Debbie, the surrogate mother, is expressed uh, breast milk to help feed the quadruplets, while remarkably, with the help of hormones, Stacy was able to breastfeed her babies as well through hormones. Wow. So thank you, Debbie and Stacy, for sharing your story. Well, Chris Fusco and his wife, Jennifer, were expecting their first baby when Chris underwent a painful and life-threatening operation to save his best friend, Mark. Listen to their story. Mark and I grew up in the same neighborhood. He was, he was just kind of a magnetic guy. He, he was a guy who could act, he could sing, and he could play sports. We, we always got along and there was kind of a, a sense of brotherhood in our relationship. Then, on a magical night in high school, Chris and Mark met a beautiful girl named Kelly at a dance, and everything changed. Within a few weeks, Mark was talking about marriage. Mark and Kelly got married. Uh, shortly thereafter, they had a son, Jacob. And then Jennifer and I got married, and shortly thereafter, we found out she was pregnant with Ben. Mark and I were such good friends. We were hoping our sons might take on some of our personality traits and uh, be just like us. I remember being sitting in my living room when Mark came over and told us he was sick. I just remember sitting there feeling sick myself. Mark was diagnosed with liver cancer and his life depended on finding a new liver. 
Nearly 20 of us stepped up to donate, friends and family. I was eventually selected to do the transplant. I will never be able to thank my wife enough for letting me do it, given that she was eight months pregnant um, with our first child and uh, that we knew there were risks involved. I was worried for Chris and I was worried for myself knowing that if something went wrong in the surgery that there was a potential for me to have to raise the baby by myself. This new procedure required removing 60% of Chris's liver and giving it to Mark. There were only a few hundred of these operations done worldwide. We knew a couple donors had died. It was never a question as to whether we would do it or not because we knew that Mark and Kelly would do the same thing for us. Obviously the surgery was a lot more than I bargained for. Um, after surgery, uh, I had several complications, including gaining 30 pounds of water weight. I was in a lot of pain. Afterward, I actually was doing much worse than him while he was sailing through recovery. Just two weeks after leaving the hospital, Chris's son Ben came into the world and it seemed like everything was going to be okay. One of the great days after the surgery was watching Mark meet Ben for the first time. To see Mark holding Ben was just incredible. It was everything that we did the surgery for. Christmas was fantastic because we knew that what we had done allowed Mark and Kelly to have Christmas with their baby at home. It was probably the best present we could have had. Um, I guess we gave the present to ourselves. <laughs> but I remember sitting back Christmas night thinking, we are so blessed to have this. We, we thought we had it. We thought we did it. Ultimately, the liver Chris donated to his best friend failed and Mark required another liver transplant. But sadly, Mark's body rejected that organ too. And without a healthy liver, Mark could not survive. And on March 25th, 2001, Mark passed away. The last day at the hospital was really rough. I just remember going into his room and he just looked a lot better to me. He looked like he was at peace. I just wanted him to know that I was proud of our friendship and proud of how hard he fought. Unfortunately, the way all this worked out, I wasn't able to save Mark. And uh, that's something that still hurts me every day. At the same time, I've kind of made it one of the goals of my life to let his son know all about who he was. In life, people are delivered to you for a reason. Our friendship clearly made us better people. I think everybody who encountered Mark Muha uh, is a better person for knowing him. Well, Chris is a newspaper reporter who wrote about Mark's life and death in a special series for the Chicago Sun-Times. And isn't that the way everybody should be leading their life so that everybody who knows you is better for it? And that was kind of the point. I mean, we had talked about the story in the hospital a little bit to the point where we thought that uh, the last chapter would have a picture of us and our, our sons and we'd be mm -hmm. holding them and mm -hmm. that would be the way to end it. And it, it didn't work out that way, but um, I think Mark would be glad knowing that the story uh, has helped a lot of people become organ donors and that's kind of why we're happy to be here uh, talking with you today, Oprah. Mm -hmm. And so would you do it again? I'd, uh, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. um, even that we know a, don a donor has died since uh, I did the surgery, but I, I think if the procedure's standardized, this procedure can save lives. And, and I go, when I go, I know I go doing all I could do to help my friend. Mm -hmm. And then what happens to your liver? You've completely recovered. Yeah, I'm regenerated and running around trying to chase an 18-month-old around the house. Yes. <laughs> and, her, and occasionally her kid, which I might add is a yeah. little bit tougher yeah. right now. Kelly, Kelly is Mark's widow, and so how's your son? He's great. He's actually a lot like my husband. He has mm -hmm. the same, Chris said, my husband had a magnetic personality. He really, my son is very much the same. 
And one of the things you're hoping is that your sons will mirror the friendship that you guys had, correct? We had talked about, I have this idea that they're going to go to college. Well, they're going to go to Stanford and be roommates. <laughs> so. We can go to wine country over there. Yes. <laughs> so. But we have high hopes for them, and we yes. hope they can be a little bit like us. And well, thank they... you. Thank you, Chris, Jennifer, and Kelly. Well, for Shelley Brady, she would do anything for her friend Bill Porter, even buy him a house. I first met Bill Porter when I was 17 years old. I was a senior in high school, and Bill Porter had placed an ad looking for someone to do deliveries. It was a summer job for Shelley, but it gave her a friend for life. Bill Porter was a door-to-door -door salesman who needed help. Despite a disability that limited use of his arms and a back that ached every day, he could still do most things for himself. One day, I finally had to ask Bill, tell me about you. I did finally learn that he was born in 1932 with cerebral palsy and that in the early 1950s when he had graduated from high school, he was told by the state of Oregon that he was unemployable. He refused to listen to that and instead he chose to listen to his mother who told him that he could accomplish anything that he set his mind to. He was determined to follow in his father's footsteps as a salesman, a job nearly impossible for a person with his physical challenges. For nearly 50 years, Bill's been pounding the pavement, selling household products door to door in Portland. His mother would help him finish getting dressed. He walked almost 10 miles a day. He became the top selling employee in his region by pushing ahead beyond his limitations. Every day is a little bit of a trial for Bill, but he doesn't like to dwell on the challenges that he has in his life. Bill has a way of knowing his limits and then reaching beyond them. Over the years, Shelley went to college, got married, and had six children. She still helps her friend Bill make his deliveries. I couldn't get along without him. We went from employer-employee to friends to extremely close friends. He never needed a friend more than in 1985. Bill's beloved mother, Irene, became ill, developed Alzheimer's, and had to be placed in a nursing home. It was the first time in his life he had been separated from his mother. It was devastating for Bill. I think that there comes a time in a friendship when you're just, your heart opens up and you are absolutely there for them for anything. And I think that that's what it became with Bill and I after his mother had passed away. Without his mother, Bill had to find someone else to help him get ready for work. His days began at 4.45 a.m. so he could take a bus to a downtown hotel where the bellhops helped him button his cuffs and fasten his tie. And a few steps away in a shoeshine shop, another friend tied his shoes just like his mother did. Then he was ready for work. After 12 hours on the streets, he'd return home to type his orders. In 1994, Bill nearly lost the home his mother had left him. By then, Shelley knew there was nothing she wouldn't do for him. He had some back taxes that he hadn't paid, and I found out that he had canceled his medical insurance because he couldn't make those payments. And I realized the dire straits that he was in. We could not imagine, you know, him losing his home. I felt like it might break him. My husband and I talked it over, and we asked him if we could buy the house so that it could pay off his debts and that he would then be able to live there and um, not have to worry about ever losing his home again. And if I have to go out and get a job at the local fast food place, then that's what we'll do. I definitely feel um, I have learned so many lessons from Bill, and they have helped me to become a better mom. But I think about how he doesn't look at life as one filled with challenges. Instead, he looks at, at the obstacles that come his way as stepping stones. 
I think you're my angel, Bill. <laughs> you're my angel. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And Shelley has written about her special friend in her book called 10 Things I Learned from Bill Porter. Shelley's here today, but Bill is not as mobile as he used to be. His hip was broken when he was hit by a car. Yeah. That's right. He was hit by a car, but he is still selling like a maniac over the telephone and on his website. Nothing stops this guy. He just keeps going and going, kind of like that Energizer bunny. Wow. <laughs> and so what you said he taught you a lot, including how to live your own values. How so? You know, I really think that he just, um, he has internalized these things. People ask me, what makes Bill tick? And I don't even know how to necessarily answer that because... Um, it's something deep inside, and I think it's those deep internal values, that, that faith that he has, his integrity. Just One of the lessons he taught you is that it doesn't matter how you got here? It doesn't matter how you got here. It only matters where you're going. Yeah. You know, we all come from different backgrounds, different shapes, different sizes, different uh, rich, poor, you know, but it, it, what matters is, is where we are today and where we're headed and who we are inside. And to follow your passion. And to follow your passion. My friend Bill, he stays focused no matter what. Once we missed a plane to Canada because he didn't have picture ID, I spent three hours frantically trying to go through his cupboards to look for something to get some ID to catch the next plane. Finally found a notarized baptismal certificate, took it to the DMV where the lady says, oh, honey, I've heard about your story. You come back here and I'm going to help you. I'm wiping the sweat off my brow, trying to repack my bags and not pass out. And I turn around and he is selling her a can of cinnamon. <laughs> He stays focused on his passion. <laughs> Thanks, Shelley. Ed and Abe were best friends who worked side by side at the World Trade Center. Sadly, they also died side by side on September 11th, but their friendship survived the ultimate test. Listen to their story. On the outside, these two men seemed to be complete opposites, but on the inside, they shared a sacred bond between them. 55-year-old Abe Zelmanowicz was an Orthodox Jew from Brooklyn. 42-year-old Ed B.A. was a Catholic from a small town in upstate New York, paralyzed from the neck down since a terrible diving accident 20 years ago. His nephew Sean says his uncle was like a father to him. When my father passed away when I was 18, um, Ed really stepped in and took over the fathering role for my brother and myself. So he and I were pretty tight. Both men worked at the World Trade Center on the 27th floor of Tower One. Abe's brother Jack says they were inseparable friends. Abe was always there for Ed, and Ed was always there for Abe. And it was a great friendship, a great bond between them. On the morning of September 11th, Jack and his brother Abe met before work. My brother and I uh, went to synagogue together that morning. That day after the services, for some reason, we both shook hands first, and then we just hugged each other. Never happened before. It was the greatest way to say goodbye. But Jack had no idea he was saying goodbye to his brother forever. 
Shortly after arriving to work in Tower One that day, Ed's caretaker, Irma, heard a huge explosion. She rushed to find Ed. When I got to the 27th floor, the stairwell door was open and Ed was sitting there in the stairwell with Abe. I said, let me go get a fireman. It was a chaotic scene, elevators not operating, panicked people rushing down the stairs. Ed's wheelchair was difficult to lift, but somehow Ed and Abe managed to get down six flights of stairs. My uncle Ed called my grandmother and said, I'm okay, I'm with Abe. I'm on my way down on the 21st floor. Uh, and that was it. The phone went dead. By now, Jack was at home, anxiously watching the horrible events unfold. The phone rang. It was Abe. I get a phone call, and he told me, don't worry, I'm on my way down. I said, make sure you do that. Please get at it as soon as you can. Abe also called my wife, Evelyn, a few minutes later. When I spoke to him, I sensed a, a feeling of calm. He really felt that the situation was in control and that they were waiting for help. I just kept insisting that, please, you have to leave. And that was the last I heard. My chief concern was that Ed would be left there alone, that he would be unable to help himself. I would certainly wager that, that Ed, on more than one occasion, told Abe to uh, leave. When I found out Abe had stayed with my uncle, it was a great comfort to know that he wasn't alone. Abe would never leave Ed. They were close friends, the best of friends. Both of their families are certain that when Tower One collapsed that day, Abe stayed with his best friend, Ed, until the very end. We have such pride in what he did and his actions that day, because we've seen how it affected countless others who contacted us, telling us what an inspiration he was to them. Even President Bush was touched by Abe's heroism and his dedication to his friend. We have seen our national character in eloquent acts of sacrifice. Inside the World Trade Center, one man who could have saved himself stayed until the end at the side of his quadriplegic friend. When I heard the President of the United States mention my brother, I said to myself that this act is truly something that all humanity will cherish for years to come. He will be remembered for a long, long time. Abe and Ed, being such close friends, teaches us there's no stronger bond than a close friendship. Thank you to both families for sharing that courageous story. Next, they're the last two people you'd ever expect to be friends, but for the sake of their children, they have grown to love each other. Jan Blackstone Ford and Cheryl Juppé started out as foes, not friends. Cheryl is Jan's husband's ex-wife. <laughs> so you can imagine the issues they had but they have grown to not only like each other, they actually love each other. About 13 years ago, I married a man who had two children, and I had one child from a previous marriage. We thought we were gonna have this happy little family, everybody was gonna get along fine. But Jan's husband, Larry, had an ex-wife who was less than thrilled to see a new woman in her children's lives. I would say that we disliked each other. She's coming into the scene. I'm looking at her saying, 
Who do you think you are? You're not, you're not gonna raise my kids. I remember when she called me up on the phone one time and said, why are you being so snippy? <laughs> and I went, because I don't wanna talk to you. <laughs> I hated it. I was jealous. Jan's taking on this new role and the kids just love her. They just think she's so funny and she's so fun. And you know, here I am, I'm kind of the drag. You know, I'm like, do your homework. She was new and exciting and it was a different person in their lives. So we would have our arguments. There were some very stressful times, so stressful that we ended up in mediation trying to discuss a custody agreement. Jan went into the meeting expecting to disagree with everything Cheryl had to say. But when she met her husband's ex-wife face to face, she realized how much they really had in common. As I sat in between Cheryl and Larry, I didn't see the neurotic woman that I thought she was. I really just saw a woman who wanted an extra night with her kids. She became the go-between for Larry and I because there was a point that we were not able to communicate. And she reached out to me and wanted to know how she could help. What I realized at that point was I could really help them get along. And if I could help them get along, then, <laughs> then my child would also be healthier. And so for the sake of their children, the former foes started working on their relationship and it started to evolve into something extraordinary. We got together because of the kids, and we have taken it past that now to a uh, very, very close friendship. Larry and I were going on vacation, and we were leaving the kids. As I'm preparing to go on this trip, I'm realizing that if something happened to Larry and I, we wouldn't have anybody to take care of Harley, our youngest. And Cheryl comes to the door, and I'm kind of pale, and she goes, Jan, what's wrong? And I started to get a little weepy. She looked up at me kind of teary-eyed and she said, what would happen to Harley if Larry and I didn't come back? And I kind of looked at her and, and I said, well, I would take her. And she said, why, why would you do that? And I said, well, it's just the natural thing to do. I just remember the relief I felt. I know it's strange that I would be glad that my husband's ex-wife would take care of my daughter, but I know what kind of mother she is. I mean, who better? I think she's pretty shocked. But I truly meant it, because what better place for this kid to be than with her brother and sister? All of a sudden, we kind of came out of the roles that we, you would think we were in, ex-wife, new wife, and we were friends. We have a special relationship because we both really, really love the same kids. There's not going to be anybody else like that. It's weird, but I almost feel like she's a sister-in-law. We celebrate all the holidays together, Father's Day and Mother's Day, and Christmas and Thanksgiving. She lives about eight houses down the street, and uh, we just walk down there, or she walks up to our house. I know that there's not one thing that I could ask her that she would say no to, and I know that she knows that it's returned, that I would do anything she asked. And there's not a lot of friends like that. Whoa. Your story, your story reminds me of something uh, that Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkin, said when she uh, talked about when she was here, how she's worked really hard at learning to love her stepson's mother, and they do the same things, mm -hmm. blended holidays, which she said she did for her stepson, mm -hmm. you know, for the children. So I wish more people could do this, don't you? It would help so many that children. That's the whole goal behind. Because mm -hmm. this is not easy to do. No. Yeah, Cheryl? It's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of dedication. Um, you have to put your jealousies aside, but, uh, do you not? Yeah, you have to put your jealousies aside. Um, you have to be sure of the person that you are as an individual. I right. think that helps. Um, That's what we were doing the whole time, is we were scheduling. I mean, we both looked at each other as mothers rather than ex-wife, new wife. Right. Wow. Because her, ch her children live at my house two weeks out of the month. So we're constantly going back and forth with who's got the kids this time, you know, where are we going with scheduling and... 
So we had to talk to each other. It well, wasn't like the normal situation. If more people do that, we'd have better kids in the world. That's the whole Absolutely. premise. Michael Weiser is Jewish and Larry Trapp, a grand dragon of the KKK. Uh, these two seem like the last people on earth to uh, ever become friends, even less likely than you guys. <laughs> Michael and Julie Weiser were excited about Michael's new job as a cantor at a synagogue when they moved to Nebraska in 1991. But just a few days after they arrived, they got a disturbing phone call. The voice on the other end of the phone uh, said, you'll be sorry you ever moved into this neighborhood. I was extremely upset and concerned because I thought maybe there was someone in the neighborhood who didn't want us to be living in the neighborhood because we were Jewish. A few days later, an anonymous thick manila envelope arrived in the mail. When I opened it, it was filled with all of this hate literature. And on the top, there was a card that said, the KKK is watching you, scum. Michael and I were just appalled and really afraid. Fearing for their lives, the Weissers called authorities. The police knew immediately that Larry Trapp had sent the hate mail. Larry was the grand dragon of the Nebraska Ku Klux Klan. White power! For years, he had targeted blacks, Asians, and Jews. He'd even threatened to bomb the very synagogue where Michael served as cantor. A diabetic since childhood, Larry had lost both legs, and although he was confined to a wheelchair, police considered him extremely dangerous. But Michael refused to be another victim. After continued threats, Michael decided to call Larry and left a message on his answering machine. I think the message was something like, Larry, you're gonna be sorry that you're doing all of these hateful things. And that felt pretty good. And so I decided I would continue to do that. And I did continue for almost four months every week. Left Larry little love notes on his answering machine. Then one evening the phone rang at the Weiser's home. It was Larry Trapp. And he said with a very quiet, soft kind of voice, I want to get out, and I don't know how. Michael and Julie agreed to meet the man who hated them face to face. And that night, Larry decided to put his hatefulness behind him. We were all crying. Larry was crying. Michael and I began to cry. Larry said that he couldn't believe how he had treated us and that he was very sorry for what he had done. And he asked us if we would forgive him. I think Larry's transformation was instantaneous. It was complete, it was total, and it was amazing. Shortly after resigning from the KKK and making a public apology for all the hateful things he had done, Larry became terminally ill. Having alienated all the people he once called friends, Larry had nobody to turn to for help. So Michael and Julie opened their hearts and their home to Larry Trapp, who lived with them until he died. But before he passed away, the former neo-Nazi converted to Judaism. I believe the power of love is immense. And love can even take a, a hateful person like Larry Trapp was and turn him into a really good guy. Grant perfect rest unto the soul of Larry Trapp. Remarkably, Larry's memorial service was held in the very temple he once threatened to bomb. I've always thought it was a really interesting thing that his tombstone is directly across from another tombstone that reads friend. And that's what Larry turned out to be, a friend and a member of the family. Ain't that unbelievable? Thank you, Michael and Julie.
So Pam O'Malley and Gail Canolti were just casual friends and neighbors until Pam was diagnosed with breast cancer. That's when Gail became her angel. After I was diagnosed with breast cancer, one of the hardest things I had to do in my life was to tell my children. My biggest concern is that I wouldn't be around to see my kids grow up. You never think that anything would actually happen to your mom. You know, you always think it, it's somebody else. I had my choice between a lumpectomy and a mastectomy. I opted for the mastectomy. You know that you'll never be the same. After the surgery, when I realized that things weren't going well, and they told me I would have to change these dressings three times a day, I just couldn't do it, and my family couldn't do it. They emotionally couldn't do it. They physically couldn't do it. I didn't want them to see me like that. I just kind of emotionally collapsed at that point. And that's when I contacted my friend Gail. Before Pam's second surgery, she had asked me if I would help her with changing the dressings. She just couldn't look at herself because that was just an, a reminder of her cancer. I couldn't believe how you can be mutilated. All the different marks on your body and cuts and bruises. It was just so ugly. Nobody in the family could handle it. So somebody had to step in, and, and I was happy to do it. For weeks and weeks, she came to my house three times a day. I always thought I was the only one in her life. She'd walk in, she'd be very calm, never felt rushed. You know, she always seemed like she was so happy to be here. She came in and did what she needed to do. She would do it, and we would talk, and we always had something to say, and she wasn't there to take care of this cancer patient and do these things for the cancer. She was there for me. Gail was like a second mother, cooking us dinner, making sure our homework was done, helping our mom get through chemo. She always made sure we were okay. In the past, you know, you hear stories about angels. You know, what, what is an angel? As I was going through this, I would just look around and think, Gail is an angel. She never made me feel that I was taken from her, that this was just something she wanted to do. She's my guardian angel, just always right there. I was honored that she asked me to help with her care. What I did for Pam is what I would do for my sister. I'll never be able to pay her back. She was my everything. How do you pay somebody back for that? Thank you, Pam and Gail. Thank you all so much. Thanks, everybody. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Oprah Show, the podcast. And I thank you for listening. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.